Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's talk about this equity market with Russ Kostrick, the portfolio manager for the Global Allocation Fund at BlackRock. Russ, your words, are base cases equities end the year higher? What's the base case based on, Russ? Good morning, John. Uh, I think the base case is pretty simple, that we're in an environment where the economy is slowing. That's one of the tricky parts. But nominal GDP, real growth plus inflation, is still likely to be somewhere around 7% this year. And when you look at that, and you think about the relationship between NGDP, revenue earnings, you're probably going to have a stronger year for earnings growth than is currently discounted. And yes, as rates back up a bit, you may get some multiple compression. But to our minds, unless they tighten much more aggressively than we think, you're probably not going to have so much multiple compression that it over uh, it overtakes the earnings growth. So still a year where stocks are positive, although not nearly as positive as we were last year or the last few years. Russ, as we saw from Apple, and I guess Amazon's on Thursday as well, how does BlackRock value these tech behemoths profiting tons of money? How do you value that right now? Well, Tom, this is, I think, part of the, the bull case that you've got companies like Apple that are still cash flow machines. And as large as they are, they're still growing their cash flow at an incredible rate. They're unbelievably profitable. This is where some of the dislocations are probably creating opportunities. We know that a lot of the early growth names, the names that are not going to have earnings for a decade, they've been hit. A lot of that is tied to the bubble coming out of speculation. A lot of that is tied to real rates going up. When you have companies like Apple, and you can pick any other name within that large cap tech universe, you know, They've come under pressure, but maybe for the wrong reason, because these are not companies where you're looking at discounting cash flow in 10 years. As we saw last week, they're generating tremendous cash flow in real time. Rusk, given the fact that you are constructive on these companies, you've got such positive things to say. And BlackRock has had a stance of holding a bit more cash. When do you know it's time to deploy it? Well, you know, the cash is not just about trying to time the market. I think part of the reason for the cash, and honestly, Lisa, we're running with a high cash balance today as well, is less about I'm going to time the market. It's more about cash in an environment in which bonds become the source of risk. Cash, along with, I'd say, a long dollar position, has become one of your risk mitigants. And if you're running a multi-asset portfolio and you're thinking about risk and managing that risk, and you're not getting the same diversification you used to get from bonds, you're going to run with a bit more cash. Russ, just quickly before you go, Friday, a lot of people expecting a soft print, maybe even a negative one. How do you think we're going to internalize that when the number drops? You know, I think we're back in an environment where people are going to get a little bit nervous about strong data because obviously the big fear is the Fed's going to be more aggressive. That said, you know, there's still some noise in this print. We know that the seasonality numbers around the holidays have been off really since the financial crisis. They've probably been even more off since the pandemic. So I wouldn't base too much on one print. Russ Kostrick of BlackRock. Hey, Russ, fantastic. As always, sir, thank you very much. Joining us now, Sarah Hunt, Portfolio Manager at Alpine Woods Capital Investors. Sarah, can we just start here? You're a Portfolio Manager. How active were you this month? 
Well, we were fairly well positioned coming into this month. So we've been active in terms of what we're looking for that might have gotten um, hit with the rest of the stocks. So we were somewhat active, but it's not like we went much. We had a much different activity level than normal because we were fairly well positioned coming into this because we were concerned about this coming into the end of last year. If someone has a bullish cast, where is the opportunity right now? I think there's a lot of opportunity in some of the tech stocks that have gotten hit. I mean, you saw that rally in the NASDAQ on Friday. I think part of that was Apple coming out and saying that some of their supply chains have eased. I think that gave people some comfort that some of the issues that they were concerned about are getting a little bit better. I don't have the numbers in front of me, Sarah, but this is really important. (laughs) Joe Feldman with Dana Telsey's advisory group has operating income at Amazon. And again, over a longer time frame of 24 months, It's breathtaking, the growth. When you look at the tech stocks, you're not looking at one week performance or one quarter. How long is your timeline to judge the value of big tech? I think the timeline has to be pretty long because some of those companies have grown fairly fairly well for a very long period of time. And when people start to talk about the tech issue earlier on with the rate tightening issue, there is a bifurcation in technology for the companies that can grow and grow profitably. And I've said this before, and I really think that that's starting to, you're really starting to see that. But there are some stocks that have gotten hit with all of this that I think are decent values here. I mean, you've got some 15 times earning stocks and some of the Chip makers, you've got some of the chip equipment makers that are cheaper now, too, than they were before. And I think that there's some real growth ahead because you're going to continue to move where we're making semiconductors. If the supply chain issues have taught us anything, I think you're going to see a different people are going to be basing their their production of semiconductors in other places than they have been because they don't like the dependency. So I think that there's a long runway for some of these stocks to grow. And I think that that is what people are going to be looking for as we go forward. Sarah, it has never been a fundamental issue. It's always been a valuation issue, at least for 2022. And some people are looking at the potential for real rates in the United States to go to zero. David Costin, among them of Goldman Sachs. How much are you including that scenario when you say it is time to start going in and buying some of these high quality names. Well, I mean, if you think about the fact that historically we had never seen negative rates before, I think just getting back to zero should not be a cause for major concern. And I think that growth can still happen under those conditions. But the problem with inflation is that it's systemic in ways that is very difficult to fight. The energy issue is one thing. The housing issue is another thing. And those are not that easy to fix. I mean, if you've got a global move away from hydrocarbons without a lot of non-expensive ways to replace them, that's not going to be a transitory issue. That's going to be a longer term issue. And the housing problem as rents go up is going to be non-transitory as well. So I think that just getting back to zero is not a tragedy for most of this group. But I think that the longer term question is going to be, what does that look like going forward? Where do rates go and what happens in the interim to inflation? But Sarah, a lot of people are saying that because of that inflation story, it's the cyclicals that you should lean into and not necessarily the growth names that have benefited by low rates. Do you disagree with that? Are you saying that actually these big names have the greatest capacity to grow with inflation? I think some of these big names have the biggest capacity to continue to raise prices. The problem with the cyclicals is that if you've got a slowing economy, then you've got you know a tailwind on one side and a headwind on the other. And I'm not sure that that's going to be the biggest place to make money, although we think some of those stocks have come down too. So it's not. I wouldn't ignore them either. It's really just looking at 
individually, stock by stock, what is this company's, what does it look like for them in the future for the next two or three years? What does it look like for, the, what does the interest rate do to them? And what do their end markets look like? And I think that's really the kind of individual stock by stock analysis that has to be done. Sarah Hunt of Alpine Woods Capital Investors. Sarah, what a busy month. All that work last week for a flat market. Just unreal, exhausting stuff. Sarah, thank you. Thank you very much. We start strong with Lisa Hornby, head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income at Schroeder's, with a backdrop out of her Rutgers economics and the great Michael Bordeaux as well. Lisa Hornby, you are grounded in economic history with Bordeaux. Place the economic history right now as you allocate forward to the market. How do you combine all the econobabble into an investment view? Uh, I think it comes back to Lisa's comment earlier about things being corrupted. I mean, I would take that a step <laughs> further. It's not yield curve, right? It's not just the yield curve that's been corrupted. It's all financial assets. I mean, you look at the price appreciation we've had over the last couple of years, and you'd say nothing could justify that except for the fact that we've had literally trillions of dollars poured into the economy, um, thanks to both Fed and and, and policymakers. And, um, markets now need to correct to some level of normalcy. And that's what we're seeing. We're in a transition phase now. Um, so, you know, our view on risk assets is a little bit more cautious. We've probably, I think we've spoken about that on this show for the last couple of months. When you get valuations in the bottom quartile and we were in the bottom decile, I think in uh, in November, you have to be a bit more cautious in your approach to risk taking. So that's where we are. Um, you know, we look at, at all in treasury yields right now and we say they do offer a little bit more value and the market is discounting a lot in terms of the Fed. Maybe we could go a little bit further, but certainly we think we're a lot of the way there at this point. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're kind of being cautious and waiting for the macro backdrop to stabilize a bit. Hopefully, the Fed gets this right. I think the chance of that is is fairly low, but hopefully the Fed does navigate this well and doesn't over-tighten into a slowing economy. Um, but if they can sort of land this, uh, land this well, then there should be opportunities for more risk-taking later this year. Lisa, I'm relying on other programs and other networks now for Fed speak because no Fed officials coming back on this program anytime soon. <laughs> In the FT, Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic, just opening South up to maybe need to go quicker if they need to, maybe not if they don't. At least we're still sticking with maybe three hikes for 22. I'm just wondering in your mind, where the gap is right now between the communication we're getting from the Fed and what the market is baking in, do you think that's a widespread or do you think it really narrows the next time we get the dot plot safe from the Fed in the middle of March? So, you know, I've seen some of the, the street forecasts out there as far as high as seven hikes. I think that's too much. I don't think the Fed gets there. I think the market disconnect between the Fed and 2022 is probably not that material. My base case still at this point is that they probably do four 25 basis points hikes rather than five. I do think inflation peaking will give them a chance to pivot off of something slightly more, slightly as aggressive as they are now, um, so become a little bit less aggressive. I think where the gap is is probably next year. Uh, the market is discounting very, very little. I think you probably need to shift some of what's in 2022 into 2023. Um, so I think that's probably where the bigger gap is. And, and the overall terminal funds rate is still 
fairly low in the market. Um, so, you know, between one and three quarter percent and two percent, that's still a very, very low terminal rate. I think there could be a little bit of scope for that to move higher as well. Lisa, you said something earlier that the chances of the Fed act, uh, well orchestrating a soft landing is fairly low. Can you walk us through what it looks like if they fail to? I mean, what you see in your likely scenario in terms of tightening and subsequent economic reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think it looks a lot like what happened in 2018, uh, where, you know, the Fed was basically over tightening into a slowing economic backdrop. Um, and they were forced to pivot in the first quarter, actually the first month of 2019. I think that's that's the template. Uh, this time, I think there's more, there's potentially even more danger of that, right? A lot of this a lot of the market, um, at least in financial asset terms, has been predicated off the fact that we've had very, very negative real yields for quite some time. If we continue to see real yields normalize, which I think they should to some degree, uh, that should put some pressure on how other financial assets, how risk assets are discounted. And that macro, you know, that macroeconomic backdrop, that volatility is a bit concerning. It doesn't immediately translate into slower economic activity, but if it happens too aggressively and too quickly and we start to see companies question the, the, the backdrop and make different decisions based on hiring, um, that, could be, that could pose a challenge. So it's, I mean, it is financial conditions ultimately that we're watching. I think there's a lot of metrics that feed into that. So far, they're relatively well-contained. Um, I think the other part of it is that Powell was pretty clear that financial conditions don't matter insofar as the household balance sheet is strong. And so that's what they're watching. And I suppose there is a, there is a potential for a, a a gap there, right? The household balance sheet can remain strong for some time because there is there are still some excess savings. People are employed. We've seen wage gains. Um, household net worth is high. That could probably remain a little bit stronger than the financial asset backdrop for some time. Elisa, and- as you look across sectors, just quickly, I want to finish on this. Some people have been raising cash. And I yeah. wonder, as you look across sectors right now, what you'd be using to fund that cash position, where you'd completely walk away from in credit right now. Can you do that on a sector to sector basis? Is it an individual name, single name to single name? What's the process you go through to do that? I don't think it's as simple as that at the moment. I think you have to watch the companies you own. I think we're seeing that companies that are doing uh, M&A get hit a little bit harder, um, at least at the outset. I think we have to be careful on, on security selection here. I mean, I think it's about taking broad beta down, but there has been sector outperformance, right? Uh, energy has done well, at least in credit markets so far. Uh, Triple Bs have outperformed on a beta adjusted basis. So, uh, you know, I think you have to be more specific than just say cut a sector um, at this juncture. It's more about the individual names and the overall level of beta in your portfolio. Lisa Smart, as always, good to catch up. Lisa Hornby there. Thank you no so Schroders. much. Right now, a great honor for Lisa Bramlitz and I to bring to you on radio and television across this nation, someone who viscerally understands this story. As we spoke to the ambassador of France to the United States last week in his history of Eastern Europe, so too, George Friedman of Budapest. He is founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures and has a family that has viscerally lived, living near Russia. George Friedman, what does the media, what does the analysis get wrong about Vladimir Putin? Well, he wants Ukraine, but he did something very strange. What he did not attack weeks ago. You don't launch an attack without surprise if you can get it. 
and sitting there waiting for the United States to build up its defensive capabilities, which the U.S. has done, uh, just increases the chance of losing. So right now, he's not going to defend invade Ukraine. Uh, he's really looking at how to split NATO. Within splitting NATO, and this is Angela Stent writing in Foreign Affairs this weekend on the Putin doctrine, I guess I have to ask, what is the Putin doctrine that you see that will allow for a split, a fracture of NATO? Natural gas. Russia is supplying almost all of Germany's natural gas. The rest of Europe, too, but Germany is the key. It's the big player. If Germany joins with NATO, it risks having a Russian cut off of natural gas. If, on the other hand, it doesn't, uh, it goes against the grain of both the United States, the British, and other players, particularly the Eastern Europeans. So what I think Putin is really doing is creating a situation with his ha hammerlock on natural gas uh, where the Germans are in an impossible position and are likely to go and split from the West in resisting the Russians or at least to the extent of not cooperating in building a defense. George, in other nations, we might ask about popularity. Does it even matter here whether this move that Vladimir Putin is embarking on is popular among the rank and file Russians? I think at this point, in near war situations, popularity doesn't matter, matter anywhere. Uh, you notice in the United States, everybody's quite quiet about it. Uh, the Germans are on the whole opposed to any operation. The British are very deep into it. Each one of them is following their national interest. And the decisions are going to be made soon, very quickly, very rapidly. And I don't think public interest will affect it, except that no one wants to come out of this looking like a loser. It's how you come out of it that matters. Well, so how does Vladimir Putin look like a winner from all this? Well, at this point, he appears to be a winner because the West has gone up and gotten really alarmed. So already he shows the Russian people that they're taking this seriously which we really haven't. Uh, the second step is, however, he's got to do something. An invasion is a very risky thing you can lose, and he cannot afford to lose. On the other hand, uh, you're in a situation where if he can manage to split NATO, if he creates a crisis in NATO, he can do something, which is why the United States right now is scrambling to find a natural gas forces that they could send to Europe to support them, because that's where the key is. Uh, if he doesn't want NATO to advance into the East, right. a perfect way to do that is to split NATO wide open on the natural gas issue. Well, George, this is important, and this goes back to your work at Stratford and, frankly, your academics at Cornell before that. Is it feasible to salvage Europe with the delivery of hydrocarbons? Have you ever seen a study where we can deliver to Germany and the rest enough oil, gas, and the rest? What I have seen is that it can't be done. There's not yeah. enough bottoms to do it. But at any rate, the United States has to give it a try, has to make it clear to the Europeans that we care about this situation, that even if there's going to be an interruption, it will be a short interruption and we'll be able to handle it and so on. But the problem, what Putin has done very well, is to shift the burden over to the Germans in particular, the Europeans in general, where the choice between defending Ukraine and having their economies wrecked has to be made. And whatever public opinion now comes in, um, they're going to go. Ukraine's not that important to them. Is it a generation? That's how he wins Ukraine. Is it a generational shift of a new German government after Merkel? Does that matter in your analysis? 
Well, Germany has built an economy that's really very powerful in Europe. It is a leader economically in Europe. Without natural gas, it doesn't have that economy. It's built itself into that position. The U.S. should have perhaps tried to build alternatives years ago, but it didn't. So it let this situation develop, and now it's playing out. Uh, it's really a reality that can't be ignored. George Friedman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Geopolitical Futures today. Just authentic analysis there. Uh, one perspective on our international uh, relations. Right now, Joshua Sharfstein with us, Vice Dean of Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, Michael Bloomberg, uh, a nodding acquaintance with his television and radio property as well. Dr. Sharfstein, it is good news, whether it is the thousands assembled in Los Angeles and Kansas City for football or in the walk-up I live in, in the lobby, everybody has to wear a mask. There seem to be great polarities. Here's the reality. We see cases rolling over nicely. We see hospitalizations rolling over somewhat. We're waiting for deaths to roll over. When deaths roll over, how will public policy change? Well, I think public policy is changing uh, in places where the cases are coming down and the hospitalizations are coming down now. Um, so I think it's going to be a regional phenomenon. And then I think, to your point, I think the national mood will really start to change as deaths come much further down. Um, and this is the, you know, approaching the moment, you know, where we are going to see COVID start to fade a little bit more into the background. Um, I don't think we'll have uh, nearly as much disruption in our lives in 2022, barring the emergence of something that we haven't anticipated, which of course could still happen. The vaccine rate, I'm going to call amateur and Omicron from 60 or 61 out to 64%. How critical is it to double that out to a 68% statistic? Sorry, that is what statistic? The vaccine rate was 60, 61 percent. It's now 64 percent, according to most of the media reports I see. How critical is it to double that out to 68 percent? Does that mean something? Uh, to, well, I mean, with every increase in vaccination, we're going to get fewer hospitalizations and fewer deaths. The value of vaccination again proved itself during the Omicron wave. So we have uh, tools um, to protect ourselves and we have to keep going. So just because it's going to fade into the background in our lives, the more we are smart about you know, protecting ourselves, preparing, the more it'll fade into our lives. It's not just by ignoring it altogether that we get that benefit. Dr. Sharfstein, meanwhile, that's the U.S and that's Europe, perhaps. Over in China, they've been trying to pursue a zero COVID policy. Uh, and we do have the Olympics starting on Friday. Hong Kong is experiencing a pretty big upsurge in Omicron. And one uh, professor at the University of Hong Kong who has researched Omicron said, the horse has bolted, and I don't think that the government is going to be able to get on top of this. What's the trajectory of COVID cases that you expect over in China, given the lack of uh, social immunity built up by natural infection and just a uh, normal life? Well, it's the lack of immunity in part because the vaccines they've used have not been uh, the strongest vaccines. And so um, they are vulnerable to uh, COVID. There's no question about it. Um, and uh, this virus and some of the Omicron variants we're seeing are 
crazy contagious. So that's not a situation that's very good. And the idea of persisting in zero COVID without the benefit of uh, better vaccines is a real challenge for China. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to believe that they'll, they could make it through with so many people coming in without it getting out. Of course, they have tools and approaches that we would find unacceptable in this country to accomplish that. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. Those tools that we would consider unacceptable, are they even enough, though, to stave off uh, the upsurge in likely Omicron cases and likely COVID cases after the Olympics? Can you game out what it might look like in the weeks following? Well, I mean, if the Omicron gets out into the Chinese population, it's likely to spread very quickly, given the fact that the vaccines used there are not as uh, effective. And then we'll have to see the scale of the reaction from the Chinese authorities. You know, I I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not someone who's going to be able to put together a scenario between the biology and the politics. But I don't think it's going to be, um, you know, very pleasant for people in China if they go for a zero COVID approach in the setting of such an incredibly infectious variant. So, you know, on the other hand, they may, you know, have to do some pretty significant actions to avoid people, so many people getting very sick. Lisa, are you surprised these Olympics are happening? <laughs> from every point of view. I love the fact uh, that Vladimir Putin is going to be going and helping with the inauguration of this Olympics, just giving you a sense of it. But honestly, John, I don't understand how they can pursue a zero COVID policy while having individuals from all around the world come into their borders and basically celebrate an international kind of confab. It doesn't make sense to me. I will see uh, this plays out. Good luck to them. Dr. Joshua Shastin there of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thank you, sir. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.